don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Somebody. He's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Good morning and welcome to another summer of Second Captains. Great to be back with you on Saturday mornings. Owen here with Kieran Murphy and Ken Erty. Hi guys. Hey there, Owen. Good morning. Our mission each series is to bring to you some of the most interesting people alive from Ireland and further afield and to reduce their entire careers, their legacies even, down to one single number. That number measures the sporting life of each guest and pits them against each other in a bloody battle for the right to be called the Second Captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person. Simple as that. The stupidity and hopefully genius of this concept should become clear over the course of our conversation. Certainly one of those, on it, I'm sure. <laughs> and what a way to get things going, the extremely shortened version of his CV reads, counterintelligence officer in the US Army, US attorney, federal judge, US senator, Senate majority leader. I think I'm safe in saying he's the first guest we've had on the show who has politely turned down an invitation to sit on the Supreme Court because he wanted to stay in government to push through a healthcare reform. David though. O'Dart? No. Don't actually, think so. No, George no, Michelet no. is still only the only one doing <laughs> that, I think. It's just as well for all of us that he made that call because not looking not far, not long afterwards he took up his role as special envoy to Northern Ireland where he brokered the Good Friday Agreement. The first guest of this brand new series of Second Captain Saturday is Senator George Mitchell. Now it's a massive honour to have Senator Mitchell on the show. He's one of the most important figures in our political history, the winner of a Presidential Medal of Freedom in the US but if you ask any basketball fan in his home state of Maine, they may well tell you that he's not even the most popular, certainly the most famous Mitchell in the family. Today you're going to see a side of him never seen before, as he recalls the insecurity of growing up in the 1940s in the shadow of a more celebrated sibling. Across, I'm sure, many of you listening have also had to bear. Murph, please remind everyone of the previous winners of our greatest non-sports person, sports person award. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Right, so our past winners are Gabby Logan in 2016, Irish artist Nan Parai, Dorothy Cross in 2017, and our reigning champ is Ashling B. But hopes are high that 2019 will be the, be the year that finally someone from that most downtrodden and marginalised sector of sport and society in general will be our champion. A man, on A man. <laughs> Speaking of which, our worst performances over the years have come from Fintan O'Toole, Paul Howard, and Blind Boy Boat Club of the Rubber Bandits. Anyway, we'd like we, to remind them of that. Of course. Uh, anyway, we judge the greatest sporting highlight in the career of our guest and announce the sporting legend of whom their performances most remind us. And by us, I mean me. And uh, can George Mitchell at long last achieve something in his career? Find out shortly, everyone. Will this morning's guest put himself into position to join that illustrious role of honour? You can tweet us at Second Captain, send us a text on 51551. Senator George Mitchell is on the way, folks, right here on Second Captain Saturday. Lay, 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 lay across my big brass bed. Lay, lady, lay, lay across my big breast bed. Stay, lady, stay, stay while the night is still ahead. Yeah, he's playing tomorrow night in Kilkenny alongside Neil Young. That's Bob Dylan and Lay Lady Lay to kick off Second Captain Saturday 2019. A nice gentle little kick for you. The first guest of the series has been a US attorney, 
He's been a federal judge, majority leader of the Senate, and he remains one of the most important figures in Irish political history, having brokered the Good Friday Agreement. But I'm sure all these achievements will pale into insignificance next to his exploits on the baseball fields and basketball courts of Waterville, Maine. Senator George Mitchell, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's brilliant to talk about this part of your life. Maybe take us right back to start. What kind of a sportsman was young George Mitchell? Uh, a wannabe athlete who wasn't a very good athlete, uh, <laughs> but I was inspired by my three older brothers uh, who were great athletes. Uh, my brother Johnny in particular uh, in basketball was very famous, not just in our community, but throughout all of the New England states, uh, both in high school and college. In fact, uh, when I was a young boy, uh, I recall uh, being designated around our town as uh, Johnny Mitchell's kid brother, the one who isn't any good. Uh, (laughs) So I had a huge mountain to climb in terms of sports. I developed both an inferiority complex and a very competitive attitude toward my brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did play in high school and in college, uh, not very well, uh, but I finally came to terms with it, and I found that it really inspired me. I figured if I can't uh, become as famous as my brother Johnny in sports, I've got to try another line of work. And uh, ultimately, I ended up in politics, and uh, we still joked uh, until he passed away last summer about uh, who got more headlines. <laughs> well, tell us, what sports did you play then? Mostly basketball, uh, some baseball. I played in college, a, a small college in Maine, Bowdoin College, a very fine institution. My brother Johnny insisted that I went there because uh, uh, the sports level was so low, it's the only college in America in which I could make the team. Uh, <laughs> but I did, and I played, and uh, enjoyed it. And it helped me come to grips uh, with the reality that uh, I simply was not the athlete that my brothers were and uh, that I ultimately had to come to terms with it and make sports a part of my life but not the central part of my life. And that helped me a lot later. Uh, In my adult life, I took up tennis and I still play that uh, quite regularly. But uh, it took me a while, but I finally got it in its proper hierarchy in my life a a part of it but not dominating yeah well that's the healthy way to look at it I'm I'm sure a lot of people probably obsess over sport a little bit too much Senator Mitchell including the people you're talking to here today can you tell us I want to talk about your brother in a bit more depth but your parents background is important here I think as well can you tell us a bit about your father his Irish links and his story my my father's parents were born in Ireland Uh, And they became part of the great migration uh, to the United States. Uh, My father himself was born in Boston. He had uh, uh, four older siblings who had been born in Ireland. And then when my parents moved to this country, they settled in Boston and my father was born. But he never knew his parents because uh, we're not sure of the history, but shortly after Uh, his birth, his mother died, his father couldn't care for the children. And so he and his siblings were raised in Catholic orphanages uh, in the Boston area. My father spent several years in the orphanage and then he ultimately was adopted. 
Uh, interestingly, uh, he lost touch with his siblings until later in life, and it turned out that they too had been adopted, but were scattered around the eastern United States. One brother ended up in Portland, Maine, another in Manchester, New Hampshire, and there were two girls, and they ended up one in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and the other in Wilmington, Delaware. So the uh, the family has spread throughout the East. My father ultimately, later in life, regained touch with them, and we, we still communicate with uh, uh, some members of his family. Uh, my mother was born in Lebanon. Uh, she was one of four girls, three of whom emigrated to the United States. She was the youngest, so when she came at the age of 16, uh, she went to live with one of her older sisters who had settled in Waterville, Maine, and who happened to live in a, a very poor industrial slum area, mostly comprised of immigrants. Uh, her sister lived next door in the very next building to where my father and his parents who had adopted him lived. That's how my parents met. And so my mother, uh, on arrival at the age of 16, went shortly thereafter into the textile mills and spent her entire life working the night shift uh, in textile mills in this industrial town. My father became a laborer. He left school at the age of 10 after only three grades and worked as a laborer, ending his life the last uh, 20 years or so as a janitor at a local school. The circumstances of your father's adoption, if what I've read is correct, Senator Mitchell, are fascinating. Can you fill us in? Yes. Uh, he was raised in a Catholic orphanage in Boston. Uh, and back in those days, the nuns would take the children out on weekends. Uh, there weren't so many Saturday masses then on weekends. There were just Sunday masses. And at the Sunday masses, they would take a group of children and line them up in front of the altar rail. And anybody in the church who wanted to adopt a child would simply take the child and walk out with them. There were no legal requirements, no prohibitions. Of course, it led to tremendous abuse, particularly in the rural areas where many of these young boys were taken and then uh, employed on farms and really not given proper care and sometimes no education. Laws have since been changed, of course, uh, to protect against that kind of abuse. But my father was very lucky uh, at a Catholic church in Maine. Uh, one day, an elderly couple who were childless, they themselves had been immigrants from Lebanon, and they lived in this industrial slum area. They walked out of the Catholic church and took my father's hand and uh, immediately changed his name to George Mitchell. And that's how he ended up in this small town in Maine. So you and your, your brothers were the children of immigrants. And we've seen this you know, countless times in U.S. sporting history. But sport was one of the ways that an immigrant family could assimilate into American culture and through baseball see themselves as American. That's the case, absolutely. Uh, sports was one of the great avenues of assimilation in the country. I can recall very clearly my parents' emphasis on two things. Uh, assimilation, being American, and education. 
My mother could not read or write. Uh, she barely spoke English. My father had been to only three grades in school, so he had a very limited education. But they were determined that their children would get the education they never had and were able to live lives uh, uh, better than they had. And, of course, it's ended up that way. All five of their children uh, graduated from college. Three of us had graduate degrees, and all of us have lived lives uh, far that would have been far outside of my parents' imagination. Uh, my parents didn't own a car. Uh, they, I don't remember them ever going on a vacation. I don't remember them ever going out to eat in a restaurant. Uh, it was work and uh, uh, struggling uh, to survive. And I feel extremely fortunate, very, very lucky uh, to have had the opportunity to be born and raised in this country and in large part through sports. All three of my brothers uh, went to school, went to college on athletic scholarships. Mm. I, didn't, I did not receive a scholarship, but I received assistance in the form of employment. So when I went to Bowdoin College, my parents had no money and couldn't pay. Uh, uh, but the college, because I played basketball, found jobs for me. So I worked full-time while going to college uh, in lieu of a scholarship. Your brother, you've mentioned it, they were all talented, and in particular Johnny, Johnny Swisher Mitchell, I believe was his nickname? That's right. Uh, as you know, in basketball, uh, when, when a, a shot uh, scores and goes through the, without touching the rims and goes just strikes the nets, it makes a swishing sound. <laughs> and he became famous for his very high arcing shots that swished through and so he became known as a swisher and literally uh, to this day that's how people remember him uh, nobody very few people ever used his real name John yeah. uh, but instead referred to him as the swisher yeah well you know you've made it in sports when, when that happens uh, the championship that they won in 1944 that himself and one of your other brothers was on going unbeaten through an entire season this must have been a huge deal what age were you when that was all happening so those there were three seasons actually okay. they won 67 consecutive games wow. over a three-year period <laughs> three bad. state three state championships and one new england championship the only team from maine that's ever won the new england championship when all six of the states uh, were participating i was in my early teens uh, the first, I was born in 1933, and these uh, three years were uh, 1942, 43, and 44. So I was about 10. And I recall with absolute clarity that I did not go to the championship game when they won the New England championship. It was on my brother Johnny's 18th birthday. It was played in, uh, at, uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. My, my father went, but my mother stayed back with me because I was in the hospital having had my appendix removed. And I recall very clearly, although this many years ago, my mother and I listening on the radio. And wouldn't you know it, Waterville won the game, won the championship, and my brother Johnny was chosen as the most valuable player in the tournament. And, and it was his 18th birthday, so it was a, <laughs> wow. a great night for him. And there I was lying in the hospital in Waterville recuperating from an appendicitis operation. You have 
mentioned a couple of times how these exploits of your brothers affected you. At this remove, obviously, you can feel pretty good about your life's achievements. But genuinely, were, would your confidence have been knocked? Would you have felt like a lot of little brothers might that I'm never going to achieve what these guys are achieving? They might have been heroes in your eyes. And did you, act, did you have a genuine inferiority complex? I did, very much so. Uh, first, I was quite a bit younger than my classmates. My, my father thought he was doing me a favor when I made the transfer from parochial school. I went to a Catholic elementary school through the sixth grade, and that finished then. So I entered the public school system, and I had done quite well in parochial school. So my father arranged somehow that I skipped a grade and moved up from the 6th to the 8th. He thought it was a great accomplishment, but in fact, it turned out for me to be very negative because I was much younger than the kids in my class and uh, smaller, less athletically able. I did all right scholastically. Uh, So I was 16 when I graduated from high school, 20 when I graduated from college. So I was always competing with boys who were a couple of years older than I was. And the inability to compete as successfully as my brothers had, although I played on the team, uh, uh, created, I, I really did have a true inferiority complex, and, and it affected me greatly in those days. Uh, but as I said, once I got to college, uh, although I wasn't anywhere near the athlete my brother was and played at a lower level of uh, competence, I mean, the league that Bowden played in was nothing like the league that my brothers played in at Rhode Island, which was far higher and more difficult. But I came to terms with it. I I got a little bit of maturity, understood that uh, uh, it was not uh, a bad thing, that I just wasn't as good an athlete as my brothers, and that I could compensate for it in other aspects of life, which is, of course, what happened. And uh, we ended up in our lives being very friendly and competitive, joking about it all the time. My brother Johnny would often joke about me being a substitute, me sitting on the bench while he was the star of the show. Uh, and uh, it, it, it made for interesting times. I, if I could tell you a story sure, about yeah, that, yeah. that uh, we became very fond of. Uh, uh, many people ask me, what was the high point of my life? Uh, and I tell them that uh, there were many of them. Surely the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland was one of them. My service as Senate Majority Leader in the United States Senate was another. But really the high point of my life was in November of 1982 when I was elected to the Senate for the first time. Uh, I had been a huge underdog in the race. I was way behind in the polls, but I was able to win. Uh, On election night, as you know, in the United States, it's kind of a tradition that uh, the supporters gather in a big hotel ballroom watching the results. And then when the race is called, the the victor and the loser in their respective hotels come down and make a a speech to the crowd. Well, once the race was called, I came down in a hotel in Portland, Maine, from the, the room I was in to the main ballroom. And it was absolutely jammed. And the stage was full. And standing right at the podium where the microphone was, was my brother Johnny. Uh, He always had a good eye for the camera (laughs) and for the press. And so when I got up to give my acceptance speech, he had his arm around me, literally right in the picture with me as I gave my speech. And the next day, the 
newspaper in Portland, Maine, carried a large picture of me giving this talk with my brother with his arm around me, standing next to me at the podium. And the caption under the picture said, Senator George Mitchell celebrating his upset election victory, being cheered on by an unidentified supporter. <laughs> well, that picture was the highlight of my life. Now, now, now the backstory is that I liked it so much that I got a glossy print from the newspaper. I had it blown up. I signed it to my brother Johnny. I had it framed, and I sent it to him. A few weeks later, I went to visit him at his home, and I looked around looking for my picture, and I couldn't see it. So I asked him, what? Did you get the picture I sent you? Yes, he said, I got it. I said, well, where is it hanging? He said, is it hanging anywhere? He said, I've put it up in the attic underneath all of my scrapbooks of my achievements, which were many. <laughs> he kept a scrapbook of his athletic achievements. So we joked about it uh, throughout much of our lives, the respective twists and turns that were taken. But we remained very, very close as a family uh, uh, and my brother, as I said, my brother Johnny and Paul both passed away within the past yeah. year. Uh, and during the time of their last days, when I visited both of them, much of it was spent in reminiscing about our past experiences. It is an amazing story, um, Senator Mitchell. I mean, when you talk about, um, you know, the circumstances in which your parents uh, began their lives. I mean, your father being raised uh, for part of his childhood in an orphanage, your mother coming to America, um, unable to speak English when she arrived. And their son goes on to become the uh, Senate Majority Leader. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's an American dream story. Do you think that kind of social mobility is still possible in America today? Uh, I think it's a little more difficult, uh, the greatness of America is that my story is not unique. If you go to most communities in America, even most neighborhoods, you'll find people with similar stories. People who came from Ireland, people who came from Germany, from France, from the Middle East, uh, millions of Jews whose ancestors came from Germany, Poland, Western Russia, many of areas in, in Central Europe, uh, desperate, uh, the victims of persecution in their homelands, lots and lots of Asians uh, in our country, people from China, from Japan, from the Philippines, from Vietnam who've come at different times. Uh, I, I'd, I'd like to tell a little story about that because this, this does mean a lot to me. You, you, right now, one of the great challenges in the world and one of the challenges that every country will face in the 21st century is the issue of migration, the movement of large numbers of people around the world, desperate people leaving their homes in search of opportunity and freedom as my parents did and as millions of others have in the past. And they encounter almost everywhere, including the United States, discrimination, hostility, uh, a sense of uh, us and them. That's not new. That's gone on throughout all of human history. 
uh, and particularly in North America and specifically the United States. Uh, beginning uh, about 500 years ago with the coming of European settlers to the United States, the British, the French, the Dutch, and the Spanish all competed for control of North America, fought among themselves, and fought with the Native Americans who had come 15,000 years earlier from Central Asia and migrated easterly across the continent. There's nothing new about this, and it's gone on throughout our history. Every group has confronted obstacles. Uh, the Irish in this country were pilloried and discriminated. I, I've researched this. I've read many books on it. They were published in many newspapers and magazines, pictures, cartoons showing the body of an ape with the face of a human and calling the Irish depicting Irish as less than human. Uh, all across the eastern United States, signs appeared Irish need not apply. They were regarded and treated as inferior in every respect, and there were religious differences as well. Italians suffered discrimination. No group suffered discrimination longer and more intensely than did Jews from wherever they came to this country. And yet... They got their hands on the bottom rung of the ladder of success in American life, and they pulled themselves up. They withstood the hostility, the discrimination, frequently the violence, and the efforts to keep them from coming. And in many cases, they rose to the pinnacles of success in our society. So there's nothing new about this. Now, what is new are the numbers. There are now seven and a half billion people in the world. Back when I was growing up, the period we're talking about, the Second World War, there were less than half that in the world, about a third of that. And the numbers are growing. You combine that with the adverse geographic effects, the spreading of the desert, the dramatic effect of climate change, and the numbers are going to increase even more. The latest UN population projections show that the population of the world will grow to about 9.5 to 9.7 billion by mid-century and to 11 billion by the end of the century. And so what Europe faces now with a steady stream from Africa where desperate people living in countries that are corrupt, where there's poor governance, where they can't meet the needs of their people, are fleeing, seeking a better life in Europe – the Middle East, where the Syrian war itself has produced four million refugees and other conflict and upheaval and very rap rapidly rising populations. And here in the United States with the problem we face from desperate people fleeing Central America, Nicaragua, Guatemala and El Salvador, where their lives are racked with violence and the absence of opportunity are trying to come here. Now, obviously, we cannot in the United States take everybody who wants to come. That's physically impossible. Although for the first 150 years, we looked for, tried to get people to come here to fill a large continent. The question is, how do you deal with the issue in a fair and rational way that continues giving people a chance to contribute to new society without overwhelming the society itself? And that's really one of the central challenges 
of the 21st century and one of the challenges of governance. And you see in Ireland, where you're sitting now, I was at a conference in Dublin recently where a speaker said that one in six of the children now born in Ireland have parents who are not born in Ireland. Mm. The composition of Irish society is changing rapidly, not as rapidly as the United States. It's much smaller. It's much more homogeneous. It doesn't have the long history of in-migration that we do. The challenge of leadership, of maintaining democratic ideals in the next half century are going to be tremendously difficult in all societies as we try to cope with this very, very difficult problem. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliantly put and a good spot to take a quick break before we ask you for your memories of your time in Northern Ireland. And most importantly, we will rank your sporting achievements. You're listening to brilliant Senator George Mitchell on Second Cup on Saturday. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Second Captain Saturday is back for the summer. Owen Murphy and Ken here with the first episode of this new series. Text us on 51551 or tweet at Second Captains. We're honoured to have Senator George Mitchell on the show this morning. He's been regaling us with stories of growing up in the shadow of his basketball legend, older brother, Johnny Swisher Mitchell. But Senator Mitchell, you ended up doing reasonably well in your own career. I think everybody would agree. It took you eventually to Northern Ireland as a special envoy in the mid-90s. We're more than 20 years on now from the Good Friday Agreement which you brokered. How do you look back at that period now? It was one of the most important parts of my life and for a reason which I'll now explain. My father knew nothing of his Irish heritage. He had little education. He worked as a janitor. I never heard him say the word Ireland. So when I went to Ireland at the request of President Clinton, in 1995, I had never been to Northern Ireland, and I had only been to the Republic once. While I was in the Senate, I was on a congressional tour that took us to European capitals, and on the way back, the plane stopped for refueling at Shannon Airport. And I decided, since I was going to go through Ireland, I wanted to stop, and so I spent two days traveling, just traveling around, driving a car, uh, trying to see the sights as best I could. As a brief digression, one of the surprises of my life was I drove the Ring of Kerry. I didn't know there was a Waterville in Ireland. (laughs) And I couldn't believe my eyes when I was driving along the road on the Ring of Kerry and I saw a sign, you're entering Waterville. I, I got out and I hailed down a a car, and I asked the driver to take a picture of me standing next to the side here at Waterville, and I sent it to my family. Uh, so that's how little I knew. My father never knew anything about his Irish heritage, and neither did his children. Well, I spent years now in Ireland. Uh, I chaired three separate sets of discussions in the North over a span of five years, and then I served as the Chancellor of Queen's University for 10 years. And it enabled me to get a sense of my father's Irish heritage, to, to, to think about what it was like for his family, although we don't know anything about his family, where they were from or what their background is. Uh, but still, being there 
and spending so much time. I've now traveled over most of Ireland. Uh, been to Dublin, I don't know how many dozens and dozens of times, and in the north, even more. Uh, I feel that I have filled a void in my life that I didn't even know existed. And I, I like to think that my father is looking down and thinking it's a good thing my son has had the chance to understand the heritage that I myself, my father, never really understood or knew anything about. So when people thank me, which they f always do when I go to Ireland, thank you, Senator, for your efforts, my reaction is I'm the one who's thankful because I got a chance I never otherwise would have had to understand and appreciate my father's heritage. And that means a lot to me. The situation in Ireland when you arrived here in 1995 was not good. Um, were you surprised at the the extent of the mistrust, I mean, the, the hatred that existed yes, at that I, time? Yes, I was. I, I had not been in Northern Ireland before. I had some knowledge of it, but not a deep knowledge. I embarked almost immediately after President Clinton asked me to go, and I agreed on an intense program of study. I read, I'm guessing, at least three dozen books on the history of Ireland, the history of relations between Ireland and England, on the conflict in the North. I read dozens, dozens, perhaps in the hundreds of articles and magazines and newspapers. I made it a point to, when I first went to go to visit and meet with all of the political leaders, the religious leaders, the business leaders, to try to gain an insight uh, into uh, the situation there and the history. By the time I left, I think I did have a good sense of it, but it was and is still a learning experience. And yes, I have to say I was surprised at the depth of hostility, at the depth of mistrust, at the depth of misunderstanding, almost willful misunderstanding on both sides of what what led to the conflict, what it, what it entailed, and what would be needed to end it. So given that level of hostility, how do you get two sides who, who mistrust each other so much to sit down and, and start to communicate? It took a long time. Uh, I think the real heroes of the Northern Ireland peace process were the political leaders of Northern Ireland and the people. Uh, the people wanted an end to the conflict. It's still, as you know, a segregated society. They lead different lives largely. It'll take a long time to change what's in people's minds and hearts. But the one thing they had in common, the overwhelming majority of people, is they did not want to endure more years of the conflict. And they wanted to get to a position where they are now, if they'll just seize it, of trying to resolve their differences through democratic and peaceful means rather than through the use or threat of violence and terror. So you, you seem to be saying, Senator Mitchell, then, that war weariness is almost the, the um, requisite starting point for, it, uh, for it, a process of this it was, it, was a, it was a crucial factor. There were many others. Uh, the entry of women into the political process played a role. The courageous leadership of both the UK and Irish governments it culminated with uh, Bertie Ahern and Tony Blair, both of whom uh, were deeply involved, but it also included on the Irish side, uh, John Bruton, Albert Reynolds. I talked to great length about this, even all the way back to when Garrett Fitzgerald 
was the T-shirt. And on the British side, uh, John Major, who preceded Tony Blair, uh, played a tremendous and largely unherited positive role. It was Major who asked me to become involved, although many in his party, the Conservative Party in the UK, were opposed to any outside involvement. It was Major who got the process underway at a time when he had a slender two or three vote majority in the parliament and he faced opposition within his own party. So uh, great credit to them, but mostly it's the leaders of Northern Ireland. Look, they're much maligned. Uh, It's fashionable in all democratic societies to ridicule and demean political leaders and surely much of it is well-deserved. But we don't take enough time or devote enough attention to those occasions in which political leaders do the right thing and do rise to the occasion. And the men and women who participated in the negotiations that led to the Good Friday Agreement demonstrated extraordinary courage and vision to do what they did and bring an end to the conflict, although it did not solve all problems. It didn't solve any problems for all time. Life has changed. One solution works today, but five years from now, ten years from now, you need something more and different. And the challenge now is for the current leadership to face up to the problems and to demonstrate the same degree of courage and vision that those leaders did back in 1998. Yeah, I mean, you know, the people were prepared to make uh, sacrifices and compromises in 1998. I mean, I'm sure you followed... Um, what's been happening more recently, uh, the Stormont Assembly hasn't sat for two and a half years now. Um, and I, I get the feeling that people have maybe kind of forgotten uh, the mindset of 20 years ago. You know, as, the, as though they've kind of forgotten how, how everybody felt in that moment, how important it was to, to bring this to some kind of uh, resolution. Why do you think 1998 can seem like such a long time ago when 1690 or 1916 can, you know, seem to uh, seem to be everyday presences yeah. in Northern Ireland? You know, I, I've been involved in conflicts uh, not just in Northern Ireland but also uh, in the Middle East and in the Balkans. And uh, in in post-conflict situations, there are two competing values and attitudes that exist. Uh, on the one hand. It takes a long time to get over the hurt caused in the conflict. That, that you understand, that keeps it going, uh, particularly those who lost husbands, fathers, children, wives. You never can heal completely, and it takes a long passage of time before that passes. On the other hand, for the young people growing up, Everybody today under 21 wasn't alive at the time we reached the agreement. They don't have a recollection or a memory of the horrific violence, not just of the killing, but of the vicious beatings and maimings and crippling that occurred in that conflict, of the fear and anxiety that pervaded the entire society. And so they may be quick to think, well, Maybe we should resort to violence to get our way. And the question is, which of those attitudes will take hold and prevail in a post-conflict society? And that's why the, the demand, the need for strong and courageous leadership is so important. 
And I, I know they're still meeting. They're meeting, I hope, right now in Belfast. I was there uh, just a few weeks ago, and at the request of the two governments, I went to a meeting with the party leaders, and I spoke to them. And I pointed out to them that the challenges their predecessors faced in 1998 were far more complex, far more in number, far more severe. And the overlay of violence was heavier and more present. There's no way you can predict what will happen in the future. All societies have violence. I'm an American. We are plagued, plagued regularly with these horrific mass shootings in our society. So as an American, I'm not in a position to preach to anybody else about what they can or should do. But in a society like Northern Ireland, which has a long history of political violence, it's imperative that we not create any likelihood that it may renew. And that means the government should get back up and running and these leaders ought to be able to reach a compromise as their predecessors did in far more dangerous and difficult circumstances. I have two more questions to put to you, Senator Mitchell. You've been great with your time. I do just want to ask you, have you got a specific highlight of your own sporting career you want to throw into the mix here? Is there a standout? I mean, you're very self-deprecating about your abilities, but was yeah. there a moment that you became the swisher, for example? <laughs> yeah, I had one great game at uh, Bowdoin, and then really it was a turning point in my life. Uh, we Bowdoin was playing the University of New Hampshire, and I had a really good game. I couldn't miss. I made almost every shot I took, and uh, but we lost the game in the end, so it was crushing. <laughs> but after that, uh, it, it somehow enabled me to justify in my own mind putting basketball and sports in a proper place. I, I knew that the game was an aberration. I'd played much better than I ever had before, probably would not play at that level again. And it enabled me to somehow put it in the right light and determine that I'm not going to be as fixated on this and competing with my brothers as I had before. And it helped me a lot, frankly. Okay, I think we have what we need. The time has come for today's guest to finally move out of his brother's shadow. Murph, would you please now rank this sporting life of Senator George Mitchell. It's a career highlight for you, Murph. Please rank this sporting life of Senator Mitchell. You don't understand. I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have, then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yes, it's time for us, Senator, to rank your all-time sporting highlight, identify the sports star who we think most closely resembles your sporting personality, and then come up with a score out of 100 via our, some would say, rather idiosyncratic scoring process to see if you have what it takes to become Ireland's greatest non-sports person sports person for 2019. You're, you're actually the first ever American elected official to have to go through this, <laughs> so apologies in advance, Senator. Uh, your all-time sporting highlight remains that amazing display for Bowdoin against the University of New Hampshire on the hard courts of American uh, college basketball. Finally stepping out, as you say, on from under the shadow of your brothers. Your display that evening as a point guard is still talked about in the hallowed halls of that esteemed seat of learning. However, we should mention 
that the testing for performance-enhancing drug use in Budden at that time was disgracefully lax. And a George Mitchell uh, report on George Mitchell's sporting career, similar to the one you were commissioned to do on doping by Major League Baseball, might yet uncover some uncomfortable <laughs> secrets. There does seem to be an unnatural level of improvement, is all I'm saying, in your latter years as a student. I jest, I jest. Of course, Senator. The, uh, the sports star that most closely resembles your sporting personality must surely be Roger Federer, whose poise and diplomacy... <laughs> in front of the world's press could be made for the political arena. His great foe is Rafa Nadal. Your great foe on the tennis court for many years was Boston Celtics coaching legend Red Auerbach, I read uh, this week. But it's yes. all grist to the mill. I, I hope. <laughs> well, I, you're very kind to say those nice things about me, although they're not warranted. And even to be mentioned in the same hour, let alone the same sentence with Roger Federer, is really something. Well, the best is yet to come, Senator Mitchell, because we're about to put a number on, on all of this. Just hold on one yes, second. Yes, for all those reasons, and taking into account the five extra bonus points I'm prepared to give you for, you know, saving our country. Uh, I'm going to give you 81 points out of 100. So, <laughs> Senator George Mitchell, this has been your sporting life. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. A round of applause, please, for Senator George Mitchell. Incredible. Thank you so much. Too sure Senator George Mitchell would support the lyric, he spits out, Brits out, only smokes carols, but that is brilliant Irish music. Rossmans, man. <laughs> exactly. From Fontaine's DC with Boys in the Better Land. Did I tell you you'd hear a side of George Mitchell you hadn't heard before? Maybe you already knew the story of Johnny Swisher Mitchell and his three-year unbeaten run with the Waterville High School mm. team in the 1940s. We didn't well, if you do know that, I tip my cap to you, but it was all news to me. I, just, I loved it. I loved the fact that his sporting highlight was the one great game that he had mm. in that it gave him a bit of closure. This is what it feels like to be my brother. Yeah. I never will be, so now I'll refocus and put my energies into... That's that done. Now to become Senate House Majority, or Senate Majority Leader. And he got his revenge with the unidentified supporter yeah. comment. That's a really good story. Wow. I mean, I think all of us who have... Uh, brothers, siblings, um, can appreciate, you know, the, the level of shade that that, <laughs> that that involved was pretty nice. You're feeling Senator Mitchell's pain there, Ken? Um, not really. I mean, I also had siblings who were much better than me, just better <laughs> specimens. <laughs> but they were younger than me. Oh, okay, it is. So I, I grew up imagining that I was great and only later found out I was wrong. Yeah, that's a much better way of doing it, really, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, they had me to look look up to you know as an inspiration I suppose in many ways their success is actually <laughs> my success yes yeah, I, yeah I, I can see where you're coming from there a text in here from Margaret sums up I think what a lot of people are saying the most enthralling beautiful inspiring chat with Senator Mitchell one, uh, one may not be born great but it is what you contribute during a lifetime 
that would be your legacy. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for that text, Margaret. Uh, big weekend coming up at Wimbledon where history could be created. Serena Williams can equal the Grand Slam record with her 24th title today and then tomorrow Roger Federer can extend his record in the men's by winning his 21st. And, you know, it's only right to celebrate the longevity of these great sports people but you do got to start, you do have to start asking some questions about the mindset of the challengers who should have <laughs> taken over by now. I know you were particularly annoyed, Murphy, yesterday we were watching <sighs> the semi-final together between Djokovic and his opponent Bautista Agut yes you're not impressed with this guy's mentality (laughs) well he seeded 20 he was seeded 23rd in Wimbledon uh, ranked 22nd in the world and the 22nd best tennis player in the world booked his own stag do (laughs) for the second Friday of Wimbledon there are 52 weekends in the year and the weekend this guy felt most certain he'd have free was the weekend of the biggest tennis tournament in the world. I mean, he's not a no-mark. He's better at tennis than everyone except 21 men in the world. And he didn't back himself to take down fourth seed Kevin Anderson, who's never won a Grand Slam himself. I mean, I know the whole power of positive thought thing is a load of nonsense for a lot of people, but bloody hell, he back did yourself cancel. a small bit here. I should say he did cancel this stag and actually played the match, albeit he lost it to Novak Djokovic in the end. Okay, he kind of played like the plane was leaving. We're done. I know you've got more to say in this matter. We've had loads of fun this morning. Hope you enjoyed it and thanks for all the texts and tweets. Next week, we're very excited to welcome the brilliant Katrina Crow to the show. And I should mention the Galway International Arts Festival, which Katrina is a big part of, kicks off on Monday. You can get a whole load of brilliant independent journalism daily at our Second Captain's World service. Find out more at secondcaptains.com See you back here next Saturday morning. Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produce the show. Thanks to Dave Gibson on sound, to Killian Down for researching. Marion Finucane is up next. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Murph. Thank, thank you, you all. Thank, thank you, Ken. Most importantly, thanks for listening and we'll chat to you next weekend. <laughs> Second captain, first captain, whatever. They never got home, those, those, those boys.